Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. If you have a copy of the scripture, you can turn or tap your way to the Proverbs. We're going to bounce around a little bit there. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to gift you a copy of the Bible. And giving people a copy of the Bible is one of the most fun things in the world. Please give me the pleasure of getting to do that. I'd love to gift you one. It's like those old sort of... um, publisher's clearinghouse moments where they're standing there with balloons and a giant check and Ed McMahon like gives the check to the person. That's what it feels like to give somebody something that's going to change their life. Now that reference is obviously very dated. If you've got a better one, tell me later. I'll use it next week. Uh, But yeah, we want to gift you a copy of the scripture so you can follow along, read at home. If you don't have one this morning, we'll have those verses on the screen for you. But as we pursue wisdom in the Proverbs, you're going to get to the kinds of themes that get highlighted regularly throughout the Proverbs. If you just start reading them, it kind of feels like a hodgepodge because you're getting thrown all of this different stuff and there doesn't seem to be much of an internal logic to why one proverb follows the other. And yet, as you let them wash over you, you'll notice some themes. One of the clear themes in the Proverbs is the way we use money. And it doesn't just talk about how to work well in order to be someone with plenty. We're going to talk about that next week. It's also very focused on what you do with that money. Or, why are you working so hard? What is it that you are doing with your work, with your 9 to 5, in order to do what? There's some clear, obvious answers to that, but it's actually a pretty perceptive question if you dig a little bit further. The Proverbs asks clearly because, Proverbs 19.2, it says, Desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Rachel and I just moved to a new house within the last, like, six months or so, and it's still um, a thought. We still have to process where we're going when we leave the house, or how to get to where we're going. There's no muscle memory. We don't really know just yet the the absolute best way to get from A to B. And whenever we leave, we have to kind of stop and have that thought again. Okay, where am I going? Because where I'm going is going to direct how I drive to where I'm going, if I go left or if I go right. You talk to productivity experts, and they're fascinated with the question of a mission statement for your community, for your company. Why? Because they get it. You have to know where you're going if you're ever going to get there. It's fun to read certain mission statements. A lot of them get really business jargony to the point of it's kind of silly to think this high-minded sort of statement for this company that, you know, they just make hamburgers. There's not really a lot going on there, even though they maybe talk about it in very lofty ways or forms. But the goal for a business would be to condense exactly what it is they do into something that is so clear and memorable that both customers and employees are all on the same page about what we're doing. And hopefully motivated, in some way enticed in the case of the customers or motivated in the case of the employees to continue. One guy I read was talking about a guy named Guy. He's a guy named Guy Kawasaki. He has a very bland first name and a very exciting last name. And as a business sort of expert, chief evangelist officer for Canva, 
Again, his, even his title's pretty hip. He was talking about how you don't really have a mission statement so much as like a mantra, something that's short, pithy, holds everybody's attention, and it can be the thing that drives your company. He said the ultimate test for a mantra, mission statement, is if your telephone operators, Trixie and Biff, can tell you what it is. If they can, then you're onto something meaningful and memorable. If they can't, then, well, it, and then you'll notice in brackets, I've had to substitute his language for mine, really isn't very good. Uh, that, that's the idea. Is it something that actually captures somebody and says, not only is this what my life is, it's what I, I want my life to be. This is what I'm about. The Proverbs are going to help us, but let me just go ahead and ask you, what is your mantra? What's your mission statement? What's the why behind the how? What's the destination to which you are navigating? Can you say it in just a couple of words? If you say it in a couple of words, has it gone from your head down into your heart? Down into your hands? Does it affect not just your loves and motivations? Does it affect your actions? Here's a problem that I, I think we might have. We'll stitch these two thoughts together, but I want you to feel the sort of weight of this. Is it possible for you to tell people to taste and see that the Lord is good? Now, you might be already kind of able to foreshadow how that connects to what your purpose statement should be in life. But let me ask you very clearly, would you, with integrity, with like a full-hearted honesty, be able to say to someone else to taste and see that the Lord is good? Have you tasted? Have you seen? Do you enjoy? Is he that purpose? Let me dig into what we have from Scripture on our purpose you can see that God is giving us a very clear what to pursue and what not to pursue. And the reason that we're going to use money as a way to understand it is because money is the way that we make what we want happen. Yesterday, not to brag, Rachel and I purchased an Apple product. And on Amazon, when I tried to get that Apple TV and have it sent to my house, Amazon told me that it would be there that day. That's crazy. But it happened. I wanted it. I pulled out my phone. I pressed the button and a man handed it to me that same day. Can I tell you what money is? Money is as close as I'm ever going to get to speaking and having it be so. It's as close as you can get to being a king and declaring and then having lots of servants jump in and make it happen. It's as close as I'll ever get to the God moment of saying, let there be, and it was. I said, let there be an Apple TV so we can watch YouTube on the big TV. And there was. And what was the connection? It wasn't my fiat will. It was finances. It was money. Money is the way for what I want to become a reality. Money is the way for me to woo you out of what you're doing and make you do what I want you to do. So what do you do with your money? It's going to help us understand what it is that you really want out of life. 
you use your money and you seek through that money what? Generally, we're seeking something that's going to give us some kind of greater sense of security and or satisfaction. We're generally using our money on insurance, on better food, on better transportation, on better lodging. We're trying to see if there's a way that the way that we use our money can increase our sense that we've got a secure place in the world or that we're having a great time out of the world. And the scripture is going to talk about that clearly because what the Bible is very concerned with is your worship or where you're finding your ultimate satisfaction and or security. So what Jesus talked about is the foundation upon which you build your house. Are you going to build your house over here or are you going to build your house over here? Meaning, is the thing that will give you security, the thing that will give you satisfaction, a foundation that will really hold you. And as you read through the Proverbs, you see the writer of the Proverbs smacking you around a little bit and asking you hard questions about, will that work? If your foundation's over here, will that hold? If your foundation's over here, will that satisfy? And God in his wisdom is giving us very clear answers. It may not be as secure as you think. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Don't trust money. Don't toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning enough to desist. Man, we can stop right there. Our whole society would screech to a halt if that verse really meant what it says it means. Don't toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on wealth, it's gone. It suddenly sprouts wings and flies like an eagle towards heaven. If you remember all the way back to 2008, when that big financial crash happened, everybody's retirement value just tanked. Happened again during the pandemic. In Utah, we experienced pandemic and earthquake all at the same time. All of a sudden, the church started to get a little bit more full, and it wasn't so much. I think that people thought the world was totally ending as maybe they saw what was happening to their 401k. You put your trust in wealth, and it will immediately leave you. That kind of thing has happened a thousand times before. It'll happen a hundred times yet. We can't get our satisfaction through, can't get our security through our money, and we also can't get our satisfaction through our money. Think about the way that you eat. Have you ever been sad that the meal you're eating is almost over? Chubby guys have. I I have. That's why I was chubby. Because that food was not just a way to feel like nutritious and healthy. That food was a way to feel happy. And you only get one lunch. I mean, you know, you can do several. But you're only supposed to have one lunch. And you sit down with that hot thing that you purchased a little bit more than you meant to spend. And you sit and you enjoy it. Oh. And you're enjoying and then all of a sudden realize that, like, you've only got two or three bites left. That moment, that realization, what does that feel like? That's the moment that you realize that ache and desire to fill yourself up with something that would truly make you happy won't satisfy. And then you keep eating and keep eating, hoping and hoping and hoping, and it can never satisfy. 
In a more poetic sort of picture in Proverbs 30, he says, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, that's again, the Old Testament word for hell. The barren womb, the land is never satisfied with water and the fire that never says enough. Start to make some connections here. He's saying this is what hell looks like. It's desire that grows and grows and grows without ever finding satisfaction. What does that sound like? It's a place with no water or the water doesn't satisfy. It's a place with a fire and a fire that can never say enough. It's like a leech that just pulls and pulls and pulls and never can give you anything back. You and I, if we build our life on the wrong possibility of satisfaction are going to fall into that desire that just draws you further and further without ever actually having the ability to give you capital S satisfaction. You know what they say is the worst thing that can happen to you in Vegas? Now you can immediately start to think of some awful things that might happen to you in Vegas if you ever go visit the place. It's kind of a spooky uh, sort of a place. It's not as like fun in Ocean's Eleven as you hope. You get there, and it is dusty, and there are people that might do horrible things to you if you're not careful. But the worst thing that can happen to you in Vegas is that you win. You know why? Because you'll just keep going back. And eventually, of course, you can't win. The gambling addict and the glutton need to get together and talk. We have to see that there are things that can't satisfy. And if that's the case, if we continue to chase them, we're just going to fall into what the Bible describes as hell. The scripture is clear that hell is kind of working its way up. It's finding its way in. It's something that you're engaging in even now. Yet, the Bible gives us a better way. It says in Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. That promise doesn't give you the completion yet, but it does start to tempt you. There's an idea that you can have something wonderful, that you can be rich. And I don't think, again, that it's just talking about finances because, again, that's a means to an end. And Proverbs cares more about the end than the means. That God can give you some kind of satisfaction. He can do it in a way that doesn't add sorrow with it. It says in Proverbs 13, 25, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Now, you can say that that might just be a way of saying that righteous people make more money and they have enough food to eat and feed their children. But the wicked eventually don't. I don't know that that's exactly what it's saying. I think the metaphor goes deeper. It's certainly clear in Proverbs 15. It says in 15, 15 through 17, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. You see what he's saying? There's something that will really satisfy. There's something that will lead you into riches without sorrow. A continual feast. The possibility of contentment is there if you go to the right place. 
That there's something that is so worthy that if you'll go for it, if you'll try to find it, it's so much to be satisfied. It satisfies so fully that you would rather have it and eat herbs than sit with this table heavy with cooked meat. Think for a moment, and again, uh, this kind of fades into the way that God's made the world, but think for a moment again about your heart. Not your physical heart, so, or not your metaphorical heart, your, your sort of heart as the center of who you are biblically, but your actual physical heart, your beating heart. The heart never stops beating. Do you ever think about that? I watched a YouTube video where this YouTube creator guy offered to pay a strong man a dollar for every curl he could do. And he gave him a weight that was a one-pound weight. It was pink. I don't know why one-pound weights are pink. You can ask the world that. But this one-pound weight was pink, and he gave it to a strong man. And he looked like a strong man. He was gigantic. His biceps were as big as your head. Big as my head. And that's saying something. And the guy said, I'll give you a dollar for every curl you can do with that one-pound weight. And the strong man laughed in joy and said, all right, I'm going to get a million dollars. Boop, 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 boop. And he started. Check back in. It's like 20,000 curls this guy's done. And there's a referee sitting there, and he just starts dropping a dollar into a pile every time the guy does a curl. Ask yourself, how many of those curls could you have done if you got a dollar for every one? Pretty impressive. And the guy actually did, at the end of the whole thing, he did 32,000 curls. Now, he was humbled by that because he thought he was going to make a million dollars. I'm impressed by that. Do you know, that though, your heart beats 100,000 times a day? And it does it in the day and in the night. It has done it ever since you were created up until this moment. Your heart doesn't stop beating, hopefully. But the point isn't life and death heart attack. The point is, think about how incredible it is that that thing, that muscle, just keeps going. What is it a picture of? There is something. There is some kind of a life that you can get into that won't stop, that won't quit, that just keeps beating. There's something that takes from the world and creates so much joy, so much energy, so much life that you just keep enjoying. You just keep living. And instead of going from where you are to sort of slowly more and more and more morose, more and more and more sort of difficult to please, more and more and more of the old man who's seen the world and has lost any kind of joy or pleasure or miracle in it, instead of going to desire without satisfaction, there is something that if given will actually go the other way. It'll turn the clock the other direction. You'll become somebody who gets gradually more and more joy out of life, finding in every little thing as well as the big things, this kind of satisfaction, this kind of joy that continues to push you, continues to pull you, continues to give. There's this guy, Chesterton. I love him. And he's so good at making the the joy of every day come kind of to life. And he finds that in his belief in God. He says, perhaps God is strong enough to exult even in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. Do you see the point? 
It's not that creation is piecemeal. It's the point that heaven gives a satisfaction that is so full it invades. It works its way into everything that you've got. It makes it possible for Proverbs 15 to be true. That there could be a cheerful heart that has a continual feast. When I'm seeking contentment in food, I wish for something like a continual feast. You think about the Romans with their vomitariums, where they eat and then release, and so they can eat more. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about even if all you have are dried herbs or a dry morsel, you still have more than the person with the fatted ox. Why? What's the hinge? Love. Love. The Bible is making it very clear, and I don't think you had to think too hard about it to understand that the main purpose, the only real fount of satisfaction that you could possibly get is from the Lord. It's from knowing God. It's from being with Him. It's from having Him pour His joy, His love into you. That's where that love is. It says in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Now you'll see at the end it says God is love. But don't notice, uh, don't miss the fact that it says that love is from God. That's its source. Anywhere it really is, truly and actually, it is coming from Him. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you see what He's inviting you to? He's inviting you to chase love back to its source. And then in beholding that source to chase that love back down into the world and to see it invade every crack and cranny. That if hell can go from an eternal destiny into a corrupting influence on your everyday life, heaven can too. It can go from an eternal destiny of joy and perfect contentment down into your daily life. And even with your broken heart and your broken situation, it can bring about an incredible satisfaction, a contentment, a continual feast. How? That love from the Lord, is working its way into everything. If you have true love in your life at any point, then you have some point of contact with, some advertisement for the love of God. Are you a parent? Do you have parents? Should be everybody. You have at some point, no matter what that relationship was like, contacted love. Do you have a spouse? Statistically, most of you have or will. Then, at some point, and again, maybe it wasn't great, maybe it didn't last, but at some point you experienced love. Does anybody have friends? Okay, well, we'll work on that. Community groups are a great place for you to go and invest and try to meet some people because that was a dismal response. You don't have to be uh, like a bouillant, but, uh, you know, there needs to be some rustle in the leaves when I say, do you have friends? No problem. Uh, Again, community groups. But if you ever have had, somewhere in the past, a friendship, hello and welcome. That's an advertisement. That's a dot, dot, dot. That's a breadcrumb in the forest leading you to love. If you start to see it that way, you see that God is giving you a blessing, an invitation that is as common as the sunrise, as common as your regular meals, 
as common as the blessings that he writes so large across our universe that they are encountering you every single moment. It is possible in seeking him that you can find him everywhere. It will become, if you ever read books about the old gold rush in California, the 49ers, it was so abundant. Gold was so everywhere that, yeah, it was kind of overblown, but not by much. There was places in California you could just walk and eventually run into gold. It was so everywhere that you were finding it constantly. That's the uh, picture. That's the illustration. And, of course, the argument back is, well, then why is it so awful in the world? (laughs) I don't know that I see that beauty. I don't know that I experience that love. Yes, I can understand it maybe as something that did happen or something conceptually, but I see a lot of corruption. Yesterday, our eight-year-old became a nine-year-old. Really exciting. Prompts parents to sit down in a quiet moment at the end of the day and review what that baby used to be and kind of talk about where that baby's headed. And in kind of the vigor of childhood, you watch kids develop, and every year they're gaining. They're gaining education. They're gaining that much more capacity. They're getting a little bit bigger. But we all know that that aging process is not always positive. You hit a point, scientific word is senescence, meaning that every year now, you're not growing, you're dying. Same week as the birthday, my mother showed me pictures of my great-grandparents. Listen, you're not always growing. Eventually, that aging process is a decaying process. You look around in the world and you see all kinds of beauty. You're also going to see all kinds of decay. If you're going to look at the mountains, you also have to look at the news. So if my argument is God's everywhere and his hand's all over the place, how do we admire him even in that? Well, the Bible doesn't end in the Proverbs. It continues. God doesn't just create us and show through a reflection of that creation, his beauty and glory, he's also a restorer. Now, I've confessed repeatedly that we watch a lot of YouTube in my house, and one of the kind of strains within YouTube is what's these kind of restoration channels. It's where these guys, are usually like um, metal worker type guys, they've got a big machine shop, will take old rusty whatevers, swords, vices, hip flasks, helmets, whatever, They'll take them out of a junk heap somewhere, and they'll try and take them all the way to original condition. And the rust and the grime and the mold and the just falling apart of it all, they'll have to try and redo or undo as well as they can. So they'll take these rusty swords and they'll bathe them in a bath of acid. They'll take this old broken down toy or tool and they'll put it in a sandblaster and shoot. All of this air just shooting this sand at it and just eating away layer after layer to try and get to something that's still healthy. They'll put it on a lathe and they'll run these crazy wire brushes at incredible speeds and burn, 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 grind, grind, grind to try and get rid of that rust, to pull off what was there. Can I tell you that in the corruption of the world, if seen through the whole of Scripture... You see not only the original painting that the enemy has thrown paint on, you also get to watch God as the restorer. 
You get to admire not just the beauty of the original, but the beauty of the restored. What God has done and is doing is take all of his creation and running it through this process, trying to bring it back, not just to some original state of grace, but bring it back to himself. And the way that he did that, as cool as it is, and as much as I might want to be one of these restorer cats that have all this incredible equipment and use these different things to kind of get from A to B, the way that God went about restoring us was to actually take that mold and take that rot and take that rust into himself. One of the guys, he had a, like a plastic cup and he had to pour some acid into it and he put these different little pieces and parts into it. And it's like, you know, editing the next day. And then in that clear acid has become this foggy, mucky, gross nastiness. And he pours it into another cup, and then he pulls out the tools to wash them off and start using them. And then he said, my daily drink. And he pulls it off out of the camera, and you kind of like, ha, 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 I'm sure he didn't actually drink that. But God did. The corruption restoration process that he went through for us was the violence of taking our rot into himself in order to give his wholeness into you. Do you understand that? Do you see that? That restoration process has to be your heartbeat. The satisfaction that comes from him and then goes from you out to the world has to be your mantra. That's your mission statement. If you can understand that, you not only get to gain the satisfaction of knowing him and watch as heaven begins to invade crooks and crannies in your life now, bringing with it perfect satisfaction, but you also get to bring something of that glory, something of that beautiful recreation into the world. If that becomes your heartbeat, now do you understand what you should do with your money? Hey, we're going to invite you to give to Hope Church. Why? Why? So you can perform the task of a tithe or so that you can gleefully throw whatever kind of money you have, which is symbolic of your will, your ability to change the world, into the most clear restoration process you know of, which is preaching the gospel. That's my hope. That's my joy. That's my invitation. It's not just a tithe, sure. But to take everything you've got, whether it's your money or your happiness, and say, with it, I'm going to advertise the goodness and the glory of God. Have you tasted and seen that he is good? If we want to show the world who he is, all we do is lift him up and he draws all men to himself. Do you love him? If not... My invitation isn't for you to gin it up or pretend. The invitation is for you to see him. To see him as he is, this restoring God. And that's what Hope Church exists to do. Come back next week. Engage, really, in one of those community groups. Open up your scripture and just start reading along. Start asking, who is this God and why is he so good? And see if he doesn't answer. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning for you to give us the grace of revelation, the grace to see that you are good, that we don't appear here today, Lord, and give you our uh, penance of a, a Sunday morning and our penance of a tithe. Lord, we come joyfully to celebrate being in the presence of what is truly 
good and the only thing that can really satisfy, Lord. I pray that you would make us hungry people who are filled with you. Continual feast, Lord. We pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.